I think, you know, a learning mindset, and I think college teaches people incorrectly sometimes that they did their learning, they did their four years. And one of the hardest things I've had to do with college grads is unlearn that to teach them, hey, you know what, you're probably going to have to learn that you got to learn the rest of your life. No degree, no problem, any problem we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going, yeah. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. I want to personally thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends, invite them to subscribe, and connect with us on social media. So today I have on Jason. Jason, do you mind giving a brief introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, right now I'm serving as Chief Technology Officer for a startup called HitPiece. Um, it's a brand that had a lot of controversy in its launch and uh, social media-wise, turning that brand around, developing trust. But it's, a, it's an NFT music platform. So if you're a creator, an artist, um, whether you be independent, signed, uh, or a diamond level, we're we're launching a diamond level project. Uh, It's a platform specifically geared toward launching music projects on Ethereum main. Wow, that's cool. I mean, there's so many cool NFT projects. And I know that the NFT world and the crypto world ups and downs. So I'm so glad that you're sticking with it. A lot of volatility. So... Now, how did you get into the NFT space? Because a lot of people tend to be younger and you have a lot of experience in Yeah. It's a very polite way of saying I'm over the hill for NFTs, but anybody No, you're not. Hey, look, it's all about the attitude. <laughs> it's more about the attitude. And I find that the people who are older, they come with a very good experience because I've I see two boats, right? There are some people who are who embrace the industry and then some people are like, why would I pay for an image or what does this even mean? But I find that the people who embrace it they're really deep and they really know their stuff. It's not just something you buy. Hey, there's an actual utility to this and they really know the marketplace. Yeah, I, I'm an agnostic when it comes to technology in general. You know, I, People will often ask me, do I believe in blockchain? And I say, well, I don't, you know, blockchain isn't Jesus. Blockchain is a technology and it has its place. It has its purpose. There's a lot of politics around blockchain. So whether the market that I'm working in today gets regulated um, possibly becomes criminalized. There's all sorts of, you know, you never know. It's whatever the guys in D.C. or the guys in Moscow or the guys in Tokyo decide. And you never know what they're going to decide. It looks like, you know, the NFT business, which is just smart contracts on a chain, are here to stay. And you know, the question is going to be, in what ways are we allowed to monetize and what ways are we allowed to, to bring on investments? I think the technology, it's pretty straightforward. It's just, you know, blockchain is a matter of taking ledgers that are public and then hashing those ledgers or tracking those ledgers in a way that um, verifies them so that we don't have to rely on trust. Uh, traditional methodologies of transacting in currency would be, uh, you know, trusted networks like banks, point to point using things like SWIFT wire transfers internationally, monetary exchanges are regulated by the government. And this whole decentralization concept of blockchain really grabbed my attention actually in 2010, the first time when I first heard about, heard about Bitcoin. No, I didn't buy a ton of it. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be on my private island if I had bought a couple of thousand dollars worth back then. I'd be set for life in, in a way that you know less than one-tenth of 1% of the world will ever experience. But I did look at it from a curiosity perspective. I've always been an academic when it came to blockchain because I thought it was a curious uh, technology. And then about 2016, I realized that this thing called Ethereum, which at the time, I think when I got into looking at how to use the smart money contract to do transactions and, uh, and how to do arrangements where we could coll- you know, collaborate on things and lock the money into the contract itself, that was actually about 2016. Ethereum was like 40 bucks at the time. So uh, again, no, I didn't buy a ton of Ethereum. I should have. Um, I really didn't think at the time I proposed it for doing land deals that were international. 
Um, I watched the space for years. Um, I bought a little bit here and there, but I really didn't think it was going to become what NFTs eventually became, which is a multi-billion dollar international trade. And I'll tell you why. Uh, as much as I think games are cool, as much as I think gaming communities are interesting, uh, and this is where my age really does work against me, I don't spend a lot of time playing video games. And I just didn't see the sort of Reddit slash gaming community impact that eventually became a multi-billion dollar business of trading JPEGs. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It's, it blew up. I mean, I had some Bitcoin in 2014. I sold it during the first peak. So I made my money. It crashed three hours later. It was pure luck. But I never really had money to buy again. And then I put too much money in at the end of December 2017. If I bought a month earlier or a month later, I would be rich. But, you know, that's what, that's what happens in life. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll catch something in uh, the future. So let's kind of take it back. How was high school like for you? And what did you want to be in high school? Um, I, I was a musician. I was in a couple of bands. I, I was a singer in a heavy metal band. <laughs> I hope there's not video out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the good thing about doing things back then. It's just like it's, it's a distant memory. Yeah, I was talented. I, I was okay. Um, but yeah, so embarrassing. You know, what, what was popular back then? Um, I, I, I was into music. I played saxophone. Uh, I played a little bit of guitar. My ambitions at, say, 16, 17, even 18 were, were more of a creative. It, it, you know, I would write a little bit. I played music. I wrote some songs. I performed a little bit. And it really never dawned on me um, as a really young kid, I want to be a scientist. I was fascinated by space. I was fascinated by, you know, the 21st century was coming. And I was fascinated by the possibility of what technology would bring us. And I'll be honest, it really, you know, other than buying, a, my dad got a, a, a Commodore VIC-20 when I was a kid. And I would get the magazines and I would write, you know, I would just manually type in the games that I wanted to play on the Commodore. Because you can only play one game at a time. They recorded to a cassette tape <laughs> and you had to manually type them in. They didn't sell you the, you didn't buy the games. You could actually, you'd actually write the games yourself or code them in. And then I learned how to play the games. Like if I wanted to cheat the game, I learned how to find the code to modify the game. So I could get past certain levels and find out what the next level was. So I, I think this is common. This is the thing that I think you do lose is that as you age, as you become a mature person, you have, you know, responsibilities, sort of gaming and tweaking at the time. I didn't think of that as being a skill that would later become my business. But what I did then for fun as a 12 year old has eventually become what I do for a living, which is simply looking at how things operate, dismantling them, figuring out what the components are, and then making them do the things I want them to do for a business purpose. But at 18 years old, when I was in high school, I got to tell you, you know, everything I just thought it was my responsibility to go to college. So when I left high school at 17, I went to a little community college. Um, I dropped out of three mediocre colleges. None of them were anything to write home about. None of them were, um, all three were the GED walking off the street student could get into. I never went to a really impressive college and there wasn't much to learn at them. You know, it was all remedial. Nothing was really, I'm just like, could you read the book and just skip the class? Everything I ever took in college was like that, except for a hypnosis class, which was really interesting. That sounds pretty fun. Yeah, I probably my favorite class I took in, in college was hypnosis. I found that fascinating. And that actually led me down a road of studying personal development and uh, like Tony Robbins and psychology and, you know, Jim Rohn, that kind of stuff. I, I did learn a lot from that. So that was like one thing I got in college for something. But for the most part, I sort of had the same perception of universities as a lot of dropouts do, which is this is not getting anywhere. So what did you do after you dropped out? Did you get a job? What was your first job? Well, I, my first job was was high school. And I remember thinking I made a lot more money like mowing lawns. And uh, my first paying thing was uh, cleaning up horse stalls and mowing lawns, manual labor as a kid, like, and I started working really young. I started working 12, 13 years old. And, um, I remember the first time I got a job job, you know, three bucks an hour or something stupid low like that. And I remember getting my first paycheck, which was like $78. 
And I thought, man, I worked a lot for 78 bucks. This have been like two, you know, two, three lawns if I had mowed lawns. And, I, and I, in my head, at a really young age, I equated employment to poverty. You know, it just didn't seem like you could ever get ahead that way unless you had credentials and experience and you just went up the, you know, went up the ladder, so to speak. You know, I didn't see how you could support yourself long enough to get up the ladder. And um, my first sort of job was like an assistant manager at a Arby's. It's a fast food gig. Yeah, there's an Arby's by me. So I was uh, I was 18 or 19 when I got that gig. I was taking still taking you know college classes at a community college, but that was sort of my first real job. And then when I left food and I made up my mind I would never go to food again. It wasn't because I didn't enjoy it. I met a lot of cool people there. I met my wife working in food. But when I left food permanently and dropped out of college the last time, that's when I pursued sales. And I got into sales for years. I did sales for probably the first, I'd say, three years of adulthood. And then 26, 27 years old, I learned about this internet thing, revisit that from my early childhood. And we had CompuServe and bulletin boards and that kind of thing. When I came back around and realized the internet was a place to sell stuff, like 95, 96, that's what got me fascinated again with computers and again with technology. And by 97, I had started an internet service provider, thanks to some nerd friends of mine. Uh, and that was my first company. So I was in my uh, you know late 20s at this point and sort of finally got into a groove of helping people get on the internet including businesses in rural Alabama, which was not particularly advanced at that time when it came to internet. Uh, I had CompuServe too, because we got rid of AOL and we got CompuServe. So I still remember. It. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. Now, how'd that first company go? And how was it having your first company? Uh, the first company was interesting. I had friends that invested. So it was actually my first venture capital slash company. I did both at the same time. I didn't understand venture capital. I didn't understand formations of corporations. Um, I had no idea how to operate a business or how to hire people or how to structure teams. And it really was just 100% focused on helping people get on the internet because I love the internet. And we were the easiest way for somebody to get on and have what I called unfiltered internet versus copy server AOL. It was tough. It was, it was three years solid of... I don't think I ever had a day less than 12 hours, you know, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday. And I did that for three years. When I sold that company, all my investors did well, doubled their money or more. We sold it at a profit, which was a, right around the time. It was August 2000, was right around the time of the dot-com bomb. Everything crashed. Well, I could see it. I, I, could see, I could see the crash coming. And fortunately, somebody came in who had an idea that they thought they could make more money off my company than I could. So I successfully sold that company and then, um, you know, quickly went to looking for other opportunities. What went through your mind? Like you left this, did you have an idea of what came next? Or you were like, hey, I need to kind of step back and think about things. I really was just freaked out. 29 years old, unemployed, a little bit of money in the bank, just not to frustrate me. No, I didn't have a clue. And I had skills that no one cared about. You know, I lived in Alabama. I didn't live in Silicon Valley. I didn't even know Silicon Valley was a thing. I was I was busy doing. I was myopically busy in my own marketplace. Um, I had a family. Thing? Was it a thing at that time? Not in two thousand. Honestly, in two thousand, no. But software yeah. development and and being an engineer, being a creator, was a thing just a year or two later. And keep yeah. in mind that all the all the post dot bomb businesses cranked up. Oh, two, oh, three. It's funny. I've got a funny story about going to Los Angeles and pitching. Um, there was a copy in LA that was doing uh, stolen property recovery, which okay. is like one of the least sexy things I've ever consulted on. And they, they wanted me to consult on application development for this project. And I had this really unsexy term that I use. And everyone in, everyone in my life and every investor I talked to said this was a terrible idea. I had this thing called Hosted applications. Now, you know this is the cloud. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have that language. I was calling it, you know, application service provider, host applications. And the pitch that I made to LA County, they were going around collecting floppy disks and getting 
viruses on these floppy disks, and they were constantly infecting their police officers' computers and infecting the main server that ran the database. And I was like, guys, you can make these uh, pawn shops that were manually typing the stuff in and collecting it through these uh, forms saved onto a floppy disk. And I was like, we could put a website up. People could type it in. And I remember at the time, they were like, yeah, but we don't own that. And I'm, I'm like, we well, don't own what you think you own. Like, you don't, no one in your cops are not software developers, right? Like, y'all should focus on being cops, not focus on being software developers. I pitched that in 2000, I don't know, it was like 2003. And of course, you know, Salesforce came around with the big no software, you know, software, the big line through it. And that was the point that I realized that um, it's less about delivery and more about salesmanship. You know, these are these lessons you learn hard. You know, I'm at 31, 32 years old this time. I'm learning this lesson for the first time that, you know, having cool technology doesn't mean you win. But kind of like the rollerblade guy, right? The guy that invented the rollerblade didn't get rich on it. Other people got rich on it. So, I mean, to be clear, and I think a lot of people, especially Gen Xers like me, sort of, that's how the career went, is they would, they would sort of like navigate around. And I want to be clear, like, I never starved. Like, it was never, it was never like, you know, I was going to miss a meal or I was going to get evicted. Once I figured out, how to think like a hacker and how to think like a developer. Everything from that point forward was just like a frustration point. Like, you know, can you make 50 grand a year? Can you make 75 grand a year? Can you make a hundred thousand dollars a year? It was never again, can I make the electric bill payment or can I pay for a car? Yeah. You know what they say? One thing about startups and ideas, one of the top things that determines success is timing. Like there are plenty of people who had the right ideas, but it was 10 years ahead of, Right. Like sometimes something's just physically. So you were just 20 years ahead of the, you know, of the cloud. Well, I wasn't even that far ahead. I was, I just didn't have the right words for it. And I wasn't, I, I learned the first time I went to San Francisco was, was probably 2004 or 2005. And I remember the first time I went to San Francisco and I met all these tech nerds. And this is the beginning of Facebook. It's sort of the light bulb went off. Holy crap. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is it. Right. Um, but at the time, I was trying to raise kids, and you know, culturally, that was not a good place to raise children. It wasn't, it wasn't inexpensive. It was very expensive to live there. And so pursuing entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, even then, I mean, I remember this friend of mine had an apartment. We stayed at his apartment. He was a three-bedroom house in, uh, in Mission District. Love that house. Love that neighborhood. I love Mission District. I still love Mission District. I go back here once in a while to the stage, walk around. And I remember um, he told me, like, yeah, it's like 2600 bucks a month. It's like he would kill for a three-bedroom house in Mission District at 2600 bucks a month. I mean, $10,000 a month would be a steal. But at the time, it was just insurmountable. I remember thinking, goodness, I can't possibly do that. So timing and then realizing the real value of location, right, was timing in its place. It just so happens, I believe in 2022, that there's not a significant amount of advantage to living in Silicon Valley. I think today, because of this, I think it really doesn't matter. I think you could be in uh, Lima, Peru. You could be in D.C. You could be in, you know, here, in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. Um, I don't think my opportunities are that hindered by location today. But there's a long period of time that it was really about location and timing. Yeah, no, things have changed. I've met my workers. I've met business partners who I've never met in person through just online and, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter. You just have so, there's so many great online communities. So what came next? You were thinking about hosted applications. What would you end up doing? I advised, for the first few years, I advised other internet service providers because that was, I had very esoteric knowledge um, from running an ISP. It was all, you know, everything from, how to run email service providers, how to run DNS correctly without getting hacked, how to deal with uh, security problems, which at the time we were all on our own. Um, there weren't companies that could come in and help you, that kind of thing. I ran small dev teams. We did development. We did development for web applications, which was a new idea at the time. But I did a lot of advising. And I, I probably advised, I mean, I remember I advised a guy that started an internet service provider in Iraq after the before the second invasion, after the first invasion. And then he came to me after the second invasion, asked me if I could help him build a power plant to rebuild infrastructure in this country. And of course, not my expertise. Yeah. But 
I met a lot of people and sort of got known for being a guy that knew how to get things done. And I would just take consulting jobs for years. Some of those consulting jobs included stock. So I have a, have a lot of stock in companies, most of which didn't turn into anything. And then I had a lot of opportunities to sort of be in the early years of companies that, you know, most of the time got it wrong, you know, wrong place, wrong time, a little ahead of the curve, a little behind the curve. But I had a lot of fun and a lot of connections over the years building that stuff. And, and of course, and then there's what I really led into, which became the lion's share of my career, as far as productivity is concerned, is I fell into building teams for startups, whether those startups be for actual startup companies or building teams for startups that were building uh, prototyping for corporations. And that became when I started, you know, sort of found my niche, so to speak. Yeah. Now, why were you good at that? Oh, I think it was um, just brute force. I just learned it from experience. You, you make so many mistakes, you start figuring out, you know, there's two ways to become wise. One way to become wise is uh, to have a mentor that teaches you from all their knowledge and other people's mistakes. The other way to become wise is by making a lot of mistakes. I chose the latter path. <laughs> I wanted to make all the mistakes myself. So I think I got good at it because even with management styles, even managing people, I've tried everything. I've tried the the hostile authoritarian executive. I've tried becoming people's friends. I've tried um, you know, encouraging people through monetary systems. And you know what I found, and this is my thesis for how to run a team, is find smart people who long to excel and then let them do what they want to do. Give them the resources to let them do what they want to do. Um, and so my trick now is seek and learn from this. You don't have to go through all the iterations I did. Find people who want to succeed, who want to do something cool, and then set them on the path and give them the tools they need to be successful. And then get the heck out of their way. Don't, don't micromanage. Don't babysit. Let them do their job. And I'm really good in 2022. I'm really, really good at knowing when to get on someone and help them and knowing when to leave people alone. That's what I've become really good at. And it took it took two decades of managing people to get there. Yeah, I mean, that's an important skill. Um, thankfully, I have a mentor who was in the recruiting space and I got a lot of inspiration from her. And it's amazing how when you give people that space and that freedom, they do a lot and they do a lot more than you expect. And you give them the tools, you understand their motivations, and then you find that they're just as invested as you are. And yeah, it's something that a lot of people don't learn. I think it's one thing that a lot of people won't ever learn because I've seen a lot of people just have the authoritarian mindset like, well, it's my company, I make the rules. But it's like, at the end of the day, if you want the most results, that usually isn't the best way. The hardest thing as a CEO and I know this intimately from being one myself, is ego. What am I contributing personally today? And you've got to learn, I'd say the biggest advice I would give to a CEO or an executive is knowing when you're actually contributing and when what you're actually doing is slowing other people down. It's really, really hard to let go of your ego and realize that there's people in your room who are doing a better job without your input than they will with your input. And being really tactful about when to give them advice even when your knowledge is good, even when you have good ideas, knowing when to leave it alone and let the, um, the organic chemistry happen and let people figure it out. Because often they'll figure it out faster than you can convey your ideas to them. Yeah. And that's, no. uh, it's tough as an executive. It is tough. It is tough. Uh, I completely get it. Now, let's talk about your mistakes. What were some of the big mistakes you made along the way? Mm, I would say the, the biggest problem that almost anyone has, if you're smart, and you're a um, big fish in a small pond, but one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is not leaving the pond and not get career-wise. But one of the hardest things to figure out, and this was tough for me, was figuring out what part of my bad career choices contributed to a life that I could not have lived otherwise. Time I have with my children, time I have with my parents, time I have with my grandparents that really driven, successful people just won't enjoy it because they're out working for a living. You know, I've got young daughters and they're out in their career world and 
know, that's the one thing I coach them on consistently is, hey, you got to figure out what do you care about? You know, you can't have both. That's just a reality. There's 24 hours in a day. You can't split those 24 hours up into 48 pieces. You know, you got, you got 24, there's 24 to go. Um, but for me, it was location. It, it was probably the, the unwillingness to move when I knew I needed to. And in the 2022 version of that, with the you know post-COVID uh, digitized world version of that, I would say if you're young and you're mobile, that there is something to proximity. And if you're the early stage of a career, it may not be a bad idea to invest in location. So if you're like, for example, if you're in blockchain, I get an apartment in uh in Miami today, right? Suck it up, get some friends, find a place and start networking, getting to know people because that's where it's happening. You know, if you were in, um, if you're in the music business today and you're in the entertainment business on the management side, I'd go to Nashville and you know where this goes, you get my point. Yeah. Like there, there was definitely a time, I think it's falling away, but there was definitely a time when going to Silicon Valley for me would have been you know, a 10x factor on my career opportunities. There's no question in my mind because it was a struggle to do it remotely. Think about this. You know, it's a 14-hour plane flight for me to meet someone face-to-face. And a lot of deals, especially over the past 20 years, got done face-to-face versus going to the coffee shop and meeting somebody walking down the street. So I do think the biggest mistake I made in my career, which was somewhat time-sensitive, was not giving enough weight to location. And I met a really smart entrepreneur uh, by the name of Noah Kagan in, um, in Austin, Texas. He runs uh, Sumo, yes. uh, AppSumo. Uh, Noah and I and another developer were having a conversation, and the guy was talking about living, I think at the time he was in um, San Antonio. And Noah said, uh, I thought it was just kind of his style. You know, he's kind of an abrasive dude. But he goes, clearly you're not serious about being successful because you're in San Antonio. And the guy just was like, what are you talking about? Could have been Dallas. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, it was, he was a Texas guy. And he says, well, I mean, if you're going to be a software developer and you want to do a startup, you move to San Francisco, period. Period. And he's like, capital-wise, there is no, there's no close number two. It's 10, 15 times the capital opportunity to launch a startup out of San Francisco than launch it out of anywhere else. And he goes, I'm in Austin because I like the lifestyle. But if I was, a, you know, when I was a serious player, I was in San Francisco. So I think location um, was my biggest mistake. And I, I don't know to what degree you can translate that to today because we have moved so much digital. Um, I do think it makes a difference. I think proximity matters. Yeah. And um, I make up for proximity by going to events. And so the second mistake I would have made was not understanding the value of partying. Okay. Now, understanding the value of having drinks with friends, networking, hanging out. The, the uh, A friend of mine told me in 2014, and this changed my trajectory of career completely, he said, you have to trust serendipity. Like Sometimes just being around people that are of like mind, that have similar goals, and letting relationships take their path. Um, not doing that at 20. You know, thinking grind, 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 instead of spending time getting to know people and developing relationships. I undervalued relationships in business until I was probably in my 40s. You know, you mentioned that location. I think location now translates to virtual location. So if you're in the NFT space, you need to be on Twitter, right? You need to be on Discord and you need to be in these communities. Because if you're not, you're losing out. So I would say closest thing to location back then is you have to be part of the online communities. Like if you're in development, join open source communities and all that, right? There are a whole lot of things. And I find that if you're not hanging out in there, you're going to lose a lot of opportunity because you're not going to interact or you're not going to be visible. Yeah. In the NFT space, and I'd say it's clear that a large number of people get this. In the NFT space, uh, Twitter spaces, I think there's a significant number of people who get it, who are part of these things. But I'll tell you, I know people who do the circuit, who do events. Yeah, I'm more than happy to talk about my approach to events, which I think is really different than the vast majority of people. But, you know, I know when I go to New York, 
and I go to NTMIC, when I go to Miami, I'm going to events down there, Art Basel, whatever, that those are connections I will never make because of Twitter spaces. Yeah. When I raise a glass with a friend in Miami or I meet somebody, I can't tell you how many people I met in New York City and then again in Miami who are then like calling me, are you going to be in LA next week? Right? Are you going to be, because they're like, hey, it was fun to hang out with you in New York. It was fun to hang out with you in Miami. Would you like to hang out in LA? Would you like to hang out in Denver? And um, a lot of overlap, like Denver ETH, Art Basel, NFT NYC, LA NFT. So, yeah, the NFT space specifically is very social. It's a social product, it's a social construct, the way the whole industry works. So, I met people at parties where I met them one time, you know, and it's like the LA thing, like, you know, call me, right? Which doesn't mean call me, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Here's my number. Call me. If you see them at three, four, five events, that becomes a relationship. Yeah. And then when you call, they talk. Then they, they answer your phone. In tech, uh, because of CES and South by Southwest and you know think tanks, in tech that's stuck, and I have relationships to this day. Um, where I met somebody three, four, five times before I picked the phone up and called. And so now, if I got a favor, or if I want to know about a project, or want to get involved in something. Um, if I were a venture capitalist and, and I and I did micro investments today, I probably have twenty really good contacts that are a constant flow of great opportunities to invest, and that came from face to face meetings with people over time. So I know you know we want to believe that you can totally do things virtual, but don't discount the face to face. It still has merit. Yeah, but I will admit, you know, there's definitely places you should be hanging out, especially if you want to do very niche type work. No, I think it's important because virtual has a lot. It's opened a lot, but that in-person is different. And just like you said, you meet people that you normally would not meet or it takes a relationship to a whole new level. So I've met about maybe five to 10 of my Twitter connections in person where I was like, hey, hit me up when you're at the airport. And, you know, because of them, I get an intro to someone in person and then I connect with that person on Twitter. So I find that the best people, they utilize both and they combine them. And now you're online, offline, because, you know, I've done it on LinkedIn where I meet people in person, connect with them on LinkedIn. And then I meet people on LinkedIn and meet them in person. And then now you mesh both of these worlds and then people like they give you opportunity. They're more, they see you a lot and all that. They think of you, they refer you. And it's something that a lot of people discount. So I would really encourage people to do that. So you mentioned you have an interesting way of approaching events. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, yeah, I don't mind saying at all. I um, I hired a guy back in um, 2013. I went to South by Southwest, and and I had a friend through social. We'd never met in person. It was a social media friend, and we were just chatting back and forth and Facebook Messenger. And he he didn't get he didn't have a sponsor that year, and so I offered. I said, well, you know, what if I pick up the expenses of going to going to Austin? And I'll pick up all the expenses and uh, just let me tag along to the parties. You know, it was a friend. It was a little bit of a financial transaction. And uh, the way he approached parties just blew my mind. It drove me crazy. You know, I get up. I, I get up at, uh, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I put my professional clothes on. And I'm, you know, I'm ready to go out and make meetings. And uh, this guy doesn't respond to texts, doesn't respond to phone calls. I made three or four meetings by 9 a.m. You know, I'm doing the professional thing, uh, trying to get to the, you know, I've got the, I've got the thing, right? I got the uh, thing around my neck. So I'm going to go, I paid for my uh, tickets. I'm going to go see the stuff. Nowhere in sight. Round 1, 1.30, he calls up and says, hey, let's go get breakfast. I'm like, so we go get breakfast at 1, 1.30. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ragging him out. But I'm getting, I'm like, dude. Like, what the heck? Like, we've yeah. flown half the day. This is, you know, this is an expensive trip for me. And he says, oh, it doesn't really kick off till like 7 or 8 o'clock tonight. And what are you talking about? They're speaking. People are talking. He goes, I don't do that crap. And uh, so that night we go out and we do our private parties. And he gets me in and he introduces me to more people than I can even remember. He knows their names. He knows where they're from. He knows what companies are doing. He's, he's a social media character. So he walks up, introduces himself. Turns over, introduces me, which is a totally different introduction than me walking up to the cold. I pitched more people on my startup than I could have ever pitched if I had 
knocked on doors, went to, went to people's speaking engagements. And so I learned really quick that the value, um, the value of meetings in the after parties was 10 X. Right. And so I'm, I'm almost reluctant to say this out loud because I've got friends that speak for a living, but, um, I've been to very, I can count on one hand, how many, uh, how many center stage events I've been to? Very, very few. I don't, I don't go to them. I quit buying tickets. I, haven't, I hadn't bought a ticket in the past five years. If, if you've got to pay to get in, I just don't go. And I walk into VIP events all the time. I seldom pay for those. So I know someone, I network, I get to know people, I know who I'm wanting to talk to. And I'm very sort of purpose-driven, and that is get warm connections and make friends. I never talk business at an event. I never pitch anybody business at an event. I'm just getting to know them. I have my elevator pitch for who I am so they know where I'm coming from. But um, that's worked for me because I develop real relationships with people. And um, most people are really focused on making the sale, closing the deal, making the relationship, uh, doing an alliance. And I, I just do not approach events like that at all. I approach events as a way to make friends. And you know, the real, here's the reality. 90% of the people, 99% of the people you pitch won't do business with you. Yeah. It's a fact, right? But what are the two reasons that people need to have to do business with you? They need to like you and trust you. So if you walk in, you pitch cold, the likelihood of closing is a hundredfold higher than mine because you're pitching, right? But you're going to get mostly no, not interested. And it's an expensive pitch. If you're going to an event, you're spending a ton of money to pitch somebody. I know a lot of people that are very purpose-driven. They go to events. So I'm going to collect investments. I'm going to sell partnerships, you know, whatever. I'm going to an event and I'm developing a lifetime relationship with somebody or I'm not interested. And if they want to hear my pitch, call me. When I get home, I'll pitch you. And then I may pitch 20, 30, 50 people, whatever, when I get home. I collect contacts. I'll you know, follow up with them. But I try really hard to make a handful of real intimate connections with people that are of like mind when I go to events. And I think that's actually, people talk about that. You know, I hear people all the time talk about, you know, it's all about the people, it's all about connections, it's all about relationships. But until you really practice that, where I don't actually care if I make a deal at this event at all, I just want to make friends that are lifetime friends. I'm going to add you to my friend list, my real friend list. I don't think you can talk about it all day, but until you actually act that way, I don't think you can make relationships happen. It's so true because when I approach networking, I always think of like, hey, how can I make this person's life easier in any Mm -hmm. shape or form? And how can I be a friend? Because the fact is most people don't need what I have. Mm -hmm. They probably won't even remember me too much. Right. But I'll be there. Right. So that I'll support them in some capacity. I'll make the intro and then you find that when it isn't your target to get the sale, you just get more sales because you're disarming, right? You're not there just to collect money. And when people realize that, hey, this person sees me for something other than my business, something other than, you know, making money, it's a lot easier because again, you meet so many people and when someone's selling you, you kind of go like, all right, I have a limited wallet. I can't buy everything. I have to kind of protect it. Yeah. But you can have many friends, right? You can have many conversations. That's that's not a lot. Now, looking back at your career, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? Um, I would say my biggest accomplishment was building teams and, and finishing product. And there was actually several serious micro accomplishments that fit into that. You know, I, it felt really good to sell my company when I sold it. It felt really good to to launch companies that then went on and became real companies. Um, you know, it's funny. You'd think I'd know this. Like it would come off the top of my head. Yeah. It's um, a tough question. I think my biggest accomplishment is the careers I helped to launch. I, I really do. I think the thing, like when I think about what I'm proud of, the number of people who worked with me that then went on to build really substantial careers, either because of connections that I made for them or with them or because of what they learned with me. It's probably my, my biggest accomplishment. I'd say that, that and my, you know, my list of, you know, my gold stars, that's probably most of my gold stars or careers I've helped to launch. Yeah. Now, what was the hardest period of your life that you went through? First year of marriage, 21 years old, kid, uh, 
it all hit one year. Uh, dropped out of college, got married, had a kid. Uh, every dumb young person mistake could possibly be made. I did it all in the first 12 months. And we experienced uh, extreme poverty. It was bad. And I had pride. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't bring myself to go to the government or go to people for help. So I just sucked it up. And my wife and my daughter at the time suffered pretty severe poverty because of that. That's the thing that probably generated the most guilt and the most, you know, feeling of worthlessness. Being poor, you know, I understand this intimately. Um, even coming from a pretty privileged background, you know, I didn't grow up poor. I grew up, my parents were fine. They, you know, dad was a college graduate. He got off the farm thanks to college, thanks to GI Bill, and thanks to his own hard work and discipline. But, you know, it, when you put yourself in that situation or when you find yourself in that situation, it, it's this cyclical difficulty. It's like an addiction. It's just hard to get out of it. So that first year was the worst. It took me years, like several years to sort of get to where I'm like I am now, like where I just don't think about it. You know, it's not part of my life, but it, it, it scars you. You sort of get these, you know, you get these sort of like cycles in your mind about what bad could happen. And you focus on the bad, like the Tony Robbins thing about, you know, the, the car thing. He tells a story about, you know, he's, he's in the race car and the guy tells him, you know, listen, when you lose control of the car, look, look where you want to go. Don't look at the wall. You're going to want to look at the wall because you're going to want to not smash the wall. But if you look at the wall, you're going to hit the wall. Yeah, look where you want to go. That's where you're going to drive. And, you know, he said the guy hits this little button and the car starts to spin. And he goes, he, even though the guy just told you, don't look at the wall. I said, what do you do? You look at the wall. So the guy actually puts his hand on his helmet, pushes his face, and makes him look at the, at the road and the green field to steer the car back into the right part of the road. And he said, the guy did it three times before he figured out to stop looking at the wall. Well, when you've experienced poverty and you know unemployment, uh, chronic worthlessness from a market perspective, it is really tough not to look back at that wall. You've done hit it once, right? And it took me a while. I'd say probably the first five years um, were hard, but the first year was the worst, right? But then that cycle of thinking back on that first year, that it doesn't really go away quick. It's sort of tough to let go of. Yeah, I learned something interesting in wrestling camp. So he gave the instructor, camp counselor, he gave the instructions because you said, don't look at the wall. And he was like, mm-hmm. wrestling is like, don't get pinned. And so what are you going to think about? You're going to think about getting pinned. Don't get taken. Right. Out. You're going to think about. So he was like, it's better to give things in the positive, like, hey, get to your knees or look at the right. street because now there's no wall is look at the street. And I found that to be, uh, you know, in sports psychology and just psychology. It's like, if you think about don't fail, the word fail is in there. It's like, hey, look forward and you're going to succeed. And that's a more positive, even though it's the same meaning, how your brain perceives it. So that's, that's very important. But now, it's not the same. It isn't the yeah. same meaning at all. It's not the same meaning. But when you're, when you're trying to make the perfect shot, like you're trying to make the three-point shot, right? Yeah. You don't practice missing the shot to, think of, to, to make sure yeah, you know yeah. all the ways you're going to miss the shot. You got to practice making the shot. There's an infinite number of ways to miss the shot. There's one yeah. way to hit the shot, right? So I, I think that, you know, I found that with, with employees, with developers, um, that the more crystal you are about focus, this is why I don't like to criticize people. You know, I used to do that a lot. I used to, I used to want to do postmortems and critiques because I like tearing things down. Like, why'd you make this mistake? What went yeah. wrong? Right. And what I found was no one ever learned. I do. I learned from that, but no one ever learned from this. They didn't learn from the mistakes that way. And so when I when someone did it, when we did a postmortem, it was how would you do that next time? Totally different question. What you did wrong? What mistakes did you make? Which is a blame question, right? It's a guilt question. Instead, it's like, hey, I know you're smarter now. I know you learned from this. How are you going to do this next time? What did you learn from this? How did you learn to do it right? And it's not the same question. Yeah, you're right. The, the energy and the psychology are night and day. And that, that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned recent. I'm embarrassed at how late it took me to get to that, is to realize that it's really, really hard to learn every possible failure. Like yeah. I told you about learning wisdom. You know, getting wisdom through bad actions, getting wisdom through mistakes, 
That is a tough road. If you can get there by focusing on the right things to do, I know these are the right things to do. These things work. That's a much, much easier path. And the psychology is night and day. Now, was there ever a time your lack of a college degree held you back in some capacity? Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're 19 and you're looking for a job, a lack of uh, a job, a job job, especially in America during a specific time. Now, let's yeah. keep in mind, college degrees are like uh, a job making these. Everyone's had one, right? Um, it's, they're really common. now. There's more people with useless college degrees. They're not as valuable as they were 25, 30 years ago. But yeah, there were certain jobs I applied to where HR would not give me a second look because I didn't have a, a master's degree in engineering or whatever, right? More than that was the psychology of thinking somehow I was disadvantaged. Like not having a college degree meant that I wasn't as valuable, which is total nonsense. I know lots of people with college degrees that offer almost no value. <laughs> I can't tell you, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people with college degrees that I had to sit down and say, okay, great, finish college. Now let's talk about how you can actually learn something. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I trust me. I went to class with some of them, and it's there's some people who are smart, but then there are a lot who just coast by and they don't really learn. And I think I read a stat: only like forty percent of people ever read a book after college, which is like alarming because you would think that they'd read one book, right, or something like that. Um, I got glasses at twenty eight. I remember distinctly. Uh, I had an injury to my right eye. You know, I went to an ophthalmologist because of. Uh, I, I got a screwdriver in my eye and it, and it did some damage to my, uh, the way that my iris worked and my eyes dilated at different paces, oh, which alarmed my doctor. So I go to my ophthalmologist. The only reason I went to an ophthalmologist because I thought I had a serious problem. And, uh, he was like, uh, he's like, well, you know, this is probably not something I can fix with surgery. It's best to leave it alone. He said, but, uh, you know, don't you find it hard to read? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you don't get headaches from reading? I was like, yeah, that's what reading does. Reading gives you headaches. And he's like, hmm, not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was 28 when I got my first pair of like adult glasses. I mean, now I read voraciously, you know, I was reading at the time, but my, my monitors kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I, I make a joke about it. At one point I had a 31 inch, CRT flat screen Trinitron monitor. It was on uh, 209 pounds, I think. Wow. And I used to talk about, yeah, I threw my back out once I moved my monitor and I thought, man, I may have a vision problem. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, a learning mindset, it, and I think college teaches people incorrectly sometimes that they did their learning, they did their four years. And one of the hardest things I've had to do with college grads is unlearn that to teach them, hey, you know what, you're, you're probably going to have to learn that you got to learn the rest of your life. And uh, if you get that naturally, then whether you're a college graduate or not, then you're always going to be upgrading and always going to be improving. But if you know, if you get your bachelor's degree in psychology and you want to become a, um, a welder, I mean, what's that going to do for you, right? You're you're starting from scratch, right? That that degree is cool. And I think it's good for it's good for conversations and your experiences were good. I'm not opposed to a liberal education. I think they're cool. I we bought one for both my kids. We made sure. I mean, we didn't buy them. But kids are yeah. a lot of that too. But like we made sure both of our kids finished college. And very important to us. Our kids have the college experience because I think that's cool. Um, but for me, I didn't have time or the money or the luxury to take four or five years off of productivity to learn stuff because a college professor thought that was important. And I think. That the one say crippling thing about college is that some people get it in their head that college is learning that that's it, and um, your your career is going to be tough, whatever your path is. If that's when you stop learning, when you leave college, you're not learning anymore. So now, at the stage in your career, what are your future goals? I want to have a lot more fun. I do want to launch. I got a couple of startup ideas in my head. I'd like to crank out. You know, while I still got time under my belt. I want to be CEO at least one or two more times. So I want to start something, you know, from scratch, build it from scratch and build something up to, I'd love to either build something up to the point that I want to keep it forever, that I want to, you know, work it the rest of my life, or that I, I build up something valuable enough that a private equity or um, a public company wants to buy 
But I've got a couple, you know, build ideas. I, I'm all about building ideas at this point. Is there something you want to share that you haven't shared already to the audience? I would give advice that since this is about, you know, no college, I'd say uh, there's something I do. It's funny. You and I talked about this before. I write down, I started doing this a few years ago. I started writing down daily journals of what I'm doing. Really simple, nothing complicated. And one of the things that I've tried to teach people is the thing I learned from someone else, which was just sitting down and writing down what I want. Sounds simple. Try it out. Write down what you want. What do you want? What is the perfect life to you look like? And figure out if what you're doing right now actually leads to that. Because if you're unhappy, if you're not fulfilled, chances are you're not actually moving toward the goal, what you actually want. And, you know, the question that I ask myself are two questions. One, how can it be the best me that I could possibly be? What is the best version of me that I could dream of? What is that guy? What does he do for a living? What does he look like? What's he spend his time doing? Who is he around? And the second question is, how can I be happy right now? Because right now I can control 100%. What can I do right this minute that makes me happy? And if you're clocking a job that you hate for a career you don't want to be in and you feel trapped, it's really tough. You know, you're putting in 8, 10, 12 hours a day in something that you don't want to do. And you got to ask yourself, you know, how much do I want to be the person that I want to be? Am I willing to take the chances and am I willing to do what it takes to be the person I want to be? You know, and if you're eating cheeseburgers and pizzas and, you know, ho-hos and sitting on the couch 12 hours a day, you're probably not going to be as fit as you'd like to be. So there's cost. There's a price to be paid to get what you want. And that goes for life. It goes for family. It goes for relationships. and It goes for career. There's a price to pay. So figure out what you want, and then you'll be able to figure out if you really think it's worth it to pay the price. I love it. I love it. There's You have to make sacrifices to get to where you want and to become the person who you want to be. Now, how would people support you and get in contact with you? Well, I have a blog, jnun.com, which I very sporadically blog on. Links there to all my socials. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm actually pretty active on Twitter, J-N-U-N. So it's jnun.com. Um, presently working at Hit Piece, H-I-T-P-I-E-C-E, hitpiece.com. Um, if you're an artist, a creative, I strongly encourage you to reach out to me and get on that platform. There's, it's, it's, there's no uh, long-term commitment. You can drop one project, do your, do your foray into NFTs and leave, especially if you're a music creator, if you know a music creator. But jnun.com, J-N-U-N.com is the best way to get in touch with me because all my stuff's there. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. This was a wonderful episode. I'm, I learned a lot from, from you during this conversation, the previous conversation, and I know I'll keep on learning more from you. So thank you for this. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You have a good one. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.